take me right back to the trap. Jack. Batter up, hear that call. The time has come for one and all to listen to the A League of Their Own recap podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Berchier. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to make sure you're subscribed and following the pod wherever you listen and rate it five stars. You can also leave a nice review to help others find it and listen to it. Also give it a follow on Instagram at A League of Their Own Pod. Today, I'm going to be recapping episode four titled Switch Hitter. In this episode, the peaches hit the road. Greta and Carson fly through the proverbial bases. Clance has to face a new reality as Guy leaves for war. And Max gets her chance to show the screws what she'd bring to the team. It's directed by Ioka Chenzira and written by today's guest, Michelle Badillo. I've interviewed her previously on the Diking Out podcast and am excited to speak with her again. I'm a big fan of her work on shows like One Day at a Time and The Bold Type. She's also acted in the most recent season of Search Party, Vita, and The Great North. Coming up to the plate, let's make some noise for Michelle Badillo. Michelle, I am so pumped that you're here to talk about your own episode. Does that feel weird to recap something you've written? Have you done that before? I have never done that before. I'm very excited. I mean, it's what I force everyone, like I do it to my friends, but I've never done it professionally. Yeah, you give them like a word count to submit to you and everything. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) First, I have to ask you, what was it like watching your episode when you saw like the cut of it? I was very, so I didn't, like, we didn't get any, the writers didn't get any advanced screeners or anything. So I was watching it on Friday. Uh, get out. Or, yeah, I watched it on Friday. That's what they do to reality TV people. Oh, that's horrendous. That's good to know. That's where writers rank is along with reality TV star. <laughs> you don't get to see your stuff until everyone else does. Yeah, you don't know how you're edited. Wow. Uh, so I was really nervous. Not that I thought, I mean, I trust, you know, trust Will and Abby and Desta and the editor. Not that I was like, oh God, it's going to be so bad. But I, you know, it's scary to it's see. Also, I, I cared. And I cared so much about this show. I think we all did. Yeah. Um, and I kind of wanted to watch it alone first so that I could process. But my sister was in town and she was never going to let me get away with that. So, yeah. Did you watch your episode first or did you start with episode one? I start. I started from I started from with episode one. Well, Good for you, know. you. Good for I, you. I watched them all. Yeah. Good. Well, so you mentioned a sister. Is that your only sister? It's my only, she, she truly is the daddy to my kid. All right. I was just going to say, what can get right into it. is your relationship to the 1992 Penny Marshall film? First of all, it's literally, not that anybody can, listening can see, but I have it right here. It's literally yes. next to my desk because it's one of my all time favorite movies. It always has been. I mean, I, it came out not to brag the year I was born. You know, I was my sister was like older, a couple years older and prettier and really good at everything. And we both played softball in the same league. And I, you know, I was like this scrappy uh, lesbian who's emotional. So obviously, same deeply resonant. Same. And of course, I'm a huge uh, Madonna person. Um, I didn't know that. I have her. Oh my God. Yeah. I have her sex, but I have an original copy of her sex book. Me too. I mean, I have. <laughs> 
It's like, the, oh, okay. I mean, love a huge Madonna. Per- it's her birthday today, by the way. Yes, it is. It's her birthday. Happy birthday, Madonna. When we're recording this, I ordered the sex book um, off eBay just a couple years ago. I don't know why I hadn't done it sooner, but now I have it out on display in my house. And when anybody comes over, it, it's like the thing to show. It's like the, here's the kitchen. Here's the bathroom. Here's Madonna's sex book. Do- that's that's literally my home tour. Yes. It's like, oh, kitchen, isn't that great? Fireplace, sex book. And I, this is like maybe my biggest brag is that the copy that I have was given to me by somebody I wrote with on uh, One Day at a Time. And he, his wife knew Stephen Mizell. And so she had a bunch of copies from him. So that's my, it's like, I kind of don't wow. want people to touch it, but I also want every, I want everybody to touch it and, and read it. That is an amazing story. That's so funny because I really said after the first recap ep that we would not talk about Madonna anymore on this podcast, but I know that's it's going to come. That's insane. That's a crazy thing to promise. I know. When I was graduating <laughs> high school and about to leave for college, I walked around my elementary school listening to This Used to Be My Playground, okay? But yeah, and I obviously I loved Rosie in it. I love Madonna in it. I mean, I, it, I know this is like unpopular opinion. It's like maybe the only thing I like Tom Hanks in. I think he's like so hot in it because he's playing like a nasty drunk. Yeah. Huge type of mine. Yeah. A nasty drunk with a strong stream. Yeah. Oh, the strongest, longest stream in Hollywood, baby. <laughs> I wonder if he insisted on like, no, 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 we're going to do this the right way. We're not using <laughs> any sound effects. <laughs> Give me some Gatorade. I hope. <laughs> I really, I really hope. And that's the behind the scenes kind of intel I am looking to get here with this podcast. But <laughs> that's amazing. So it was the year uh, you were born. So how long until you watched the movie? I watched it really because I think my mom had been a big fan of the movie. And I remember watching it. Like, I don't really remember a time before I've seen it. I saw it. Yeah. Like, I I feel like I saw it probably pretty young. Right. Like, maybe maybe six or six or seven. Yeah. Wow. And, it yeah, it's so relatable for people with, with sisters. And uh, going into the series, I was kind of wondering, is there going to be a sister story? But you obviously, we don't need it. Fuck sisters. No, yeah. I'm kidding. But but yeah, I think that that was a very deliberate choice also of like, right. Because once you have sisters, then it's, it's, you're never going to get away from the comparisons. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something that I'm enjoying so much about the series. You're giving us the nuggets that we want as fans of the original movie but it's not such a hard mapping that it's like distracting or you're making comparisons or you're like, that's not how it's supposed to go or anything like that. It really is its own show, but still providing that service to the fans. So um, give a a little wink and a little, a little wink and a nod. Was there anybody in the room who hadn't seen a league of their own before getting into it? Or is it just like this universal movie that we all love? I'm pretty sure it was the universe, like universally <laughs> beloved. I mean, also it's a ton of queer people in the writer's room. So sure, sure. hard to get through uh, being a queer person without having seen it yeah. and adored it. But yeah, I think that, and certainly by the time we actually got in the room, like, I think if you had a meeting for it, 
you definitely watched it. Right. I don't like when people do that thing where they ask you if you've seen something and you say no, and they react so shocked. And it's like, there's so much content out there. Like, yeah, maybe somebody hasn't seen Goonies. I don't know. I mean, I have. (laughs) You know, when people have that big rant, they're like, how could you have never? A League of Their Own with women is the one thing that I'm like, what happened? (laughs) That you didn't (laughs) see it. Who, who was, yeah, it's like, who didn't love you? Yeah. You must not have been loved if nobody showed this movie. If nobody were like, like, let's sit down and watch this right now. Dark. I mean, also, it's like, especially if you lived through the 90s and like, it has Madonna and Rosie in it. It's like, you are watching it. Right, right. Let's get into the episode. So we leave off on episode three with a scene where Carson gets off the phone with Charlie and he says he hasn't read the letter yet. They're talking. Carson hangs up the phone, immediately beelines to Greta's room to go and get her to to follow her into um, Makeout Island. And uh, a past guest of this podcast texted me after watching the episode to say that it was very reminiscent of In Orange is the New Black when Piper Mm -hmm. gets out of solitary confinement in season one and goes to find Alex to make out for the first, for like their first thing and just kind of like beeline. It's like there's a change in the character and they're like, fuck it, it's on. I think the whole writer's room has also watched Orange is the New Black. Um, But I don't, I don't remember. That was not an intentional parallel, but I think it's probably like a, it must be like a semi-universal queer experience for like the moment you flip the switch and you beeline to the person you want to make out with. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) <laughs> and, and that's what we, and that's what we're left with and then we go into episode four which is so gay so right <laughs> off the bat i right off the bat i uh, i must thank oh. you <laughs> i must thank you for your service for creating one of the gayest episodes of television <laughs> Just in terms of an honor and a privilege. Yeah. I felt like I needed one of those counters that the umps have to just like count the number (laughs) of makeouts that were happening. Just like click. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Like when will we max out here with hot makeouts and you did it and that's a feat. So congratulations. Thank you. I was very excited. Like I had a feeling that when we were starting to talk about the sort of shape of the season and what the episodes were, and it was like, oh, episode four is going to be when they really, I'm making a hand motion, but you know, <laughs> when they, when, when Carson and Greta, like when we, when we let them get at it. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Ooh, I want that one. I want that one. <laughs> and so I was, inc- I was really happy to get it. Well, It opens on a montage promo for Baker's Candy, and it's very focused on how ladylike the players are. And was that based on an actual ad that you saw that Wrigley put out at the time? Because I know there were a lot of these videos. Yeah, so it that was, I mean, we were trying to find a lot of different places in the season to have moments like that where we could, you know, because there is so much hilarious and like also uh, upsetting content from that time of like what Wrigley was putting out to try and make these women like palatable. Right. Um, 
more so than I think that they had to, which is like a, you know, I'm pretty sure people would have wanted to watch them play baseball, even if they, you know, were a little more masculine, but, but yeah, so we were always looking for places to bring that element of the league in outside of just, you know, the first charm school moment in the second episode. So yeah, that is based on a lot of different, like the, the promotional kind of like the, the newspaper stuff where it would be like, and this person does this, but she also bakes pies. Right. You know, it'd be like, right. does she... I was curious. So I started Googling to see if I could find like a similar video. And one I found was <laughs> the announcer. So somebody uh, slides into to home and she's safe. And the announcer says she gets a score on the board and a bruise on her leg. Better a bruise than long pants. Eh, gals? <laughs> uh-huh. Like, of course, ladies, you would rather have bruises than pants. It was that something so, like that's real. That's real. Like somebody that's what's so insane about it. Yeah, that it's like that. that's not like, yes, it's funny. And we're doing like a, you know, maybe we're, but it's like we're not really making it crazier than it was. No, you're not <laughs> at all. Uh, but that is such a funny sequence with everyone, especially for some reason, Shirley playing the flute on the field just I know, killed come me on. And, and that was not that I wish I could say that that was my idea but when I I was like so excited by whoever on set was like we're we're putting a flute in Caperland's hands was a genius yes yeah because it makes me think of um unfortunately Sarah Palin who I don't like to think about much but I felt like there was this <laughs> it, it was like she's political but don't you forget she also plays the flute like <laughs> Remember, Republicans, <laughs> she's a real lady. <laughs> oh, it almost makes me feel mad for Sarah Palin, but not really. <laughs> so then the next thing I noticed, though, after that montage, for the first time, we get a different title sequence. I don't know if, if that was like a big deal or, or, or whatever, but I saw that and I was like, huh, that's funny because I know that the title sequence is, you know representing all the different teams in the league. And then this time it it was just like a black and white patch. And then it was kind of like a somber thing. I'm like, oh no, does somebody die this episode? Like I, I got a little bit nervous. I'm like, is this the tone? What's happening? I know it gives a little bit like, I, I saw that too for the first time the other day. And I was like, oh, but then I was like, oh no, I think it's because we just watched a black and white video. And right. so now it's in black and white, but it does give a like- Just an art choice. This, this is the episode where nothing good happens. Right, right. <laughs> but then immediately, we know something good happens because it's cut to making out <laughs> cut to make out city baby yes so fun to just have the cutting between them playing and winning and finding their started as a team and then finding the spots to make out with Greta being you know kind of paranoid about being discovered did you have those times in your life of like making out, but then always just being a little bit jumpy, like, is someone going to find us? Not until very recently. Well, I, cause I never made out with anyone in high school. Um, that would, you know, I never got to have like a secret make out, um, which maybe is a good thing, but cause I didn't, you know, started a tiny bit later in college, but recently I was out of the country and, with my girlfriend and it was a little bit like, Ooh, I don't know if we can make out here actually. And yeah. so there was a little bit of going around sneaking around corners or right, right. whatever, but, but and then also, I mean, just generally like when you're, you know, 
I haven't had to do it under like threat of um, like the kind of threat that the two of them are under, but yeah, I've had to do it in a fun way. Yeah. So I want to bring a little of that spirit of sexy fun. Well, it definitely brought me back to high school. Let me tell you. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, <laughs> the chemistry still can't get over. I mean, how great the two of them are together because I don't know. What what are your thoughts on this? I'm always defending the casting of people who aren't necessarily like out or queer in queer roles if they can do it justice. Yeah. Because we get things like in And Just Like That, we have Che Diaz and Miranda, and there's zero chemistry. And I'm like, I get it. They're both queer, but this no, is no hard, hard to watch. I generally don't have a, like, I, especially with uh, women, I'm like, well, they're gay. Like, they're all gay, even right. if they're not. Right. So that's just how, that's how I walk in the world where I'm like, well, they must be a little gay. Yeah. Uh, so I really don't. And also, I think women in particular, like, especially Darcy and Abby, who have been friends for 15 years, like, I think women who are the best friends are a little in love with each other. Yeah. And I think that like creates a chemistry that and, and like if you're really comfortable with your friend I know it, it seems like it would be maybe more awkward but like I think it's like also have you seen like Darcy is hot yes like I think she could have chemistry with a tree so <laughs> um that no qualms about casting Darcy yes yes I love it I don't think anybody watching it's like the Kate Blanchett thing it's like keep giving her those roles nobody's complaining <laughs> Yeah, we're yeah. I mean, and if people are like, I'm sorry, like that's that's your cross to bear, right? Um, Don't bring me down, right? Don't don't give this podcast one star. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's start then with that by talking about their arc during this episode. So they go on a, a very big journey i would say this episode from having just come off like an episode where they were like no we're not doing this and carson fighting it fighting it fighting it and now carson's like giving in can't keep her hands off her also must mention the line speaking of darcy being so hot uh (laughs) When Greta says, why don't you go inside first? And Carson says, why? And Greta says, I like to watch you. I almost passed out. That was a huge moment for me. (laughs) Just like that is maybe I have to say, I was almost going to even talk about this later. But like that is that's maybe the thing I'm most proud of in my entire career. I had to (laughs) like I had to dig so like I was not feeling like it was not in a sexy place in my life um and I I and this is like I wanted to give them a moment you know like one of those moments when you first start dating somebody and also especially if you're somebody who maybe like Carson maybe like me at different points in my life who have not maybe felt super sexualized by someone else yeah and then they say something to you that makes you like embarrassed and wet yeah and like and like but also like really into yourself um and so I 
I literally put on, I like locked myself in my office, in this very office. I listened to the song I Touch Myself like 30 times in a row. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, baby, like you have to, you have to get in there. You have to access like that, that thing. Um, and then I wrote it and then I deleted it because I was embarrassed. I was like, this is so personally horny to me that I'm like ashamed that my bosses are going to read it. Meanwhile, it's like, it's not that big of a deal, but it was, I was really horny about it. And then I was like, no, 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 keep it in. And I'm so happy. And Darcy like adds so much, gives it exactly what it wants to be. And so I just feel like, I hope people know that I was horny writing it. Yes. I mean, it's, to me, that's like the hottest thing. I'm like, what a hot scene. This is why it's important to have queer people in the writer's room. You just know... Uh, um, I mean, yeah, so many, so many moments like that. I mean, it's so fun and plays to uh, Abby Jacobson's strengths as an actor when they're on the bus and Carson is plotting to get them into the same room. And that's <laughs> such a funny exchange. Also, I want to talk about Shirley later, but Shirley becomes one of my favorite characters, like really shines in this episode for me. So sure. I mean, I would kind of lean because I, I knew Kate Berlant before. So whenever I was always like more Shirley because I so know Kate's voice. Yeah. And it's like a lot of this episode, I mean like the sex stuff is fun, but like the ma- a lot of this episode is was hard emotionally to write. And I would always be like, let me get to a fucking Shirley scene so yes. that I could just like relax and have a good time and and like let you know, Carson and, and Shirley just like play. Right. Right. Was it your idea to have it be <laughs> that they're staying at a convent? It's funny. So actually, and I'll be quick about this. I, don't, I won't, I, I could literally speak for eight hours about everything, but originally when we had uh, conceived of the episode, we were very, you know, we were doing a ton of research and we had found out that in Racine, which is where the first away game was supposed to take place, that there was like a huge Danish population. So first we were like, oh, so they stay at this like Danish bed and breakfast. And I had cre- like crafted this whole thing about this like old woman named Ida, who they all think is a Nazi. And like, it was a whole, that's actually uh, why Carson is eating sausage in that scene because it originally took place uh, at a Danish bed and breakfast. But then they, I was in New York shooting search party and, I got texts from both Desta and Roberta being like, Hey, look at like location stuff happened. The motel or the B and B is now a convent. And at first I was like, Oh, all my good Danish jokes. And then I was like, wait, a convent is so horny. Like, yes. I wish that I had thought of that to begin with. Uh, I mean, could there be any place hornier than a convent really? It's so funny. I mean, when you're thinking about writing and being like, where is the craziest place for them to be together for the first time. It's a convent. It's it just like... I mean, I, it's like one of those gifts when like something goes wrong in production yeah. and then it's actually like the best thing that's ever happened. Yeah. Um, like now I'm like, it should have been a... Like we should have known the whole time it was supposed to be a convent. Like that's... It, it's perfect. And I can't even take credit for it. Well... I'll imagine those funny Danish bits <laughs> because that also sounds funny. I mean, maybe season two, you know? Yes. The Nazis will still be very suspect. 
yeah, I mean, there was, you guys, I'm sure you can imagine there was a lot of Shirley having Jewish Nazi panic. And then the interaction between Carson and Greta, it's changing on the field. Greta's getting a little bit more bold in her support of Carson. We're learning a little bit more about Greta's experience and, and the depth of that. Um, talk a, a little bit about that, um, about adding like the the backstory for Greta and her experience and kind of like the the rules that she sets up for herself, which is an interesting thing and feels really real that if you're queer at that time, you have a, a way of operating and rules of engagement that you play within. Yeah. I mean, we talked a lot, a lot, a lot about Greta's backstory, first of all, because we talked about everybody's backstory, but also because I think particularly, even though she's like hot and you're rooting for them, Greta in that first episode, when she says thought so, and then walks, I mean, it's like, ouch, she's kind of a fuck boy, you know, and right. she leaves with the guy. Yes. And it's like, you, she's kind of plays it hot and cold. And it was also very clear, like in the writer's room, like which of us have been like hurt by a Greta and like which of us haven't. <laughs> and, um, so we felt it was really important to make Greta, because, and also we see a lot of this like femme fatale trope. Right. And she sort of is that, she's like a, you know, a, a lesbian femme fatale, but we wanted you know, it's like you want to know why that person is the way that they are and that they're not just like some cardboard, sexy Jessica Rabbit cutout. Yeah. And yeah, we talked a lot about like what are, like we made a list of rules, like what would the rules be? Like, and there's way more rules that we came up with that are not in the episode, but like, you know, how are the ways that her and Joe have had to uh, survive and how does that play into, like, how is that layer how does that play into the relationship she's starting with Carson? And I think it was cool for, I mean, I was happy that we got to have a moment for the two of them to sit down and have an actual conversation. Yeah. And for Carson to have the moment where she asks like the scary thing. That was so well done. We talk a lot about how lesbians do processing, but I feel like we don't actually see it a lot on TV, like to actually just have two people have an open conversation. That was something that I took note of because it was after Greta compliments Carson that Carson almost feels safe and like, okay, she's into me. Now I can ask this question that I've had for weeks and feel safe finally asking that. And I feel like that's such a relatable thing. It's like you have a question you want to ask, but you don't want to be annoying or you don't want to come off as like, jealous or paranoid or something but then if you get like enough reassurance you're like okay I think I can finally ask about that thing that's been bothering me yeah like and we wanted to show also this side of Greta that is more you know that can create sort of a safe space and be a little bit more caring and then also sort of Carson's like baseball arc in this episode where she's sort of learning gaining a little bit more confidence and then how does that play romantically as well yeah also, when Greta talks about how with the women she's with um, and Carson asks if they're if a lot of them are also married, when Greta says, you know, sometimes it's more fun for for <laughs> them when they go back to their husbands. Is that more of something that Greta tells herself to not feel so guilty about? I don't like this term, but like being a homewrecker or like being the other woman. <laughs> Or is it something that she tells herself to 
take a little bit of the weight out of, of what she's actually doing, like makes it sound like, oh, yeah, I have fun with them. And then I'm just like setting them up for their husbands. And, and I'm OK with that. Like it's a service she's providing. It was like three things for me and which is like a lot to put into a sentence. But I think Darcy played it really, really beautifully. But for me, it's it's both of those things you said. So it's her a little bit justifying her behavior to herself. It's her a little bit justifying giving Carson the space to be able to do this thing that maybe she's scared of doing. And it's also a little bit of self-protection of like, I know what this is. And like these women never, it's not like they're ever going to leave their husbands for me. And so so it's like a her, it's both her kind of opening the door, like opening, opening the door and shutting a different door. Yeah. Let's talk about the sex scene. When you're writing a sex scene, how much of it do you actually write? Or is the blocking just like a whole separate thing done with like an intimacy coordinator and figured out with like the actors and the the directors? What's your role as a writer in that? So I mapped it out pretty extensively. It wasn't exactly how I had mapped it out, obviously, because I, regardless, I knew they were going to get on set and you're going to want to shoot something differently. And there is going to be an intimacy coordinator and things can get, but like I mapped it out, not in terms of like, and then Greta puts her fingers here. Like it wasn't, it wasn't mapping out the sex acts as much as trying to track uh, like Carson's emotional journey still through that yeah. sex scene. Um, and like, especially the getting into it and then, yeah. So, I mean, they totally on set, they made it like gorgeous and sexy, uh, yeah. but I had done, also, I wanted to do, a, cause we were also figuring out at that time, like we didn't actually know, we weren't sure how much we we're going to be able to show on this show yeah, and how much everybody would be comfortable showing or doing or whatever. So we were kind of over mapping it in the writing process to get to what felt like most appropriate for the tone of the show. Yeah. Well done. And also I want, I just, I love to just type the word breasts. Yeah. Um, so any excuse. When typing out about their bras, did you feel compelled to write like brassiere since it's like the style of bras that they're wearing <laughs> feel very much like you should call it a brassiere? You laugh. I did write brassiere and then was like, <laughs> it's a serious question. Girl, right. Girl, right. Bra, like right. Bra. I can't, I just like, it was, it, it almost was like, I was taking myself too serious. Like I wrote, I, and I, I, cause I remember it was like, she, I remember writing like Carson takes off her shirt and then Greta takes off her brassiere. And then I was yeah. like, bitch, right. Bra. Yeah. Like, right. Bra. <laughs> so brassiere was in play though. Nice. Speaking of that, it seems like it was a very conscious choice to have the dialogue be more contemporary in terms of the way they talk. You know, that there are some turns of phrases like let's rob the bank that are in the the pilot, but really like the the humor and the way they're speaking to each other feels very contemporary. Can you talk more to that? I love that choice. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, it's like always kind of like the version of speech that we see in films from the 40s is also not really how people spoke to each other. Not that they spoke to each other like the way you and I are speaking right now, but it's it is a little would be hard to like authentically write the way people spoke in the 40s anyway, because we don't totally know what that was like. Right. Um, But it was other than that, it was a conscious choice to make it feel to be able to bring people into to feel like people weren't fundamentally different in 1943. The world may have been a little bit different, although not as different as you'd like it to be. Right. But people were fundamentally the same. 
and the way they related to each other was the same. And so we're just doing language that is familiar to the audience. Love that. And then by the end of the episode for Greta and Carson, the good times are over. (laughs) They're back in Rockford and Greta kind of shuts Carson down a little bit, is a little bit cold and is like, hey, now we're back home. What's that about? Oh, no spoilers. Um, you know, Gre- Greta's got her rules right, and they right. were on the road and, you know, it's like what happens in Kenosha stays in Kenosha, baby. No, I think that Greta really let her guard down and it was beautiful. And then... Um, and Joe points it you know, out. I think she gets back home. Yeah. Yep. Joe she got a little, little, little splash of cold water, little splash of cold water. And, you know, without, I don't want to spoil anything, but Greta's got stuff. Yeah. You know, Greta's got stuff. So let's move on then to, I want to talk about Max, Clance, Tony, that whole Mm. storyline. Now, I was getting into this debate a little bit with my wife, who I'm watching it with. And anytime Tony, Max's mom, is kind of shutting down Max and her dreams, my wife gets so mad. And she's like, come on, support your daughter. And I'm very much like kind of team Tony. If I had to imagine where Tony is coming from and what Tony has gone through in her life and how important it is to maintain the family business. And this is a a theme with parents in general. A lot of parents want to work hard so that their kids don't have to go through the same challenges they went through. So when Tony's being hard on Max, it's not coming from a place of like, I don't care about you. It's coming from a place of care, but like a normal uh, mother daughter or parent kid relationship, the kid can't see that. You're just like, why are you crushing my dreams? A nail on the head, 100%. Like, nothing Tony is doing is coming from any place other than so much love and fear and also having in her own experience. And, you know, she also has, like, you know, Edgar, Max's father, is so so team Max and so encouraging of this thing that, like, it kind of forces Tony to play bad cop because she's like, you're not, that's not a sustainable life and of course we would all we all wish that our mothers just like got us and were like in our corners but they are they're in our corners in a different way which is like I just want you to be okay and to a mother okay maybe looks different than it does to you but right um, but that stuff was was tough tough to to write well because then we bring another layer into it that I wasn't expecting and it's that Tony's sister Birdie is an invert, which is a term that I'd never heard of until this show, but that was a, a phrase of the time for gay people. <laughs> the insult du jour. Yeah, it makes sense. Kind of catchy, an invert. It's almost one of the nicer <laughs> nicer things that was probably said at the time, like, they're just, they're inverted. It's fine. It, uh, it like, I don't, I, there is something about that word for me that hits me, like, very harshly I yeah not sure I think because it's like deviant sounds kind of fun <laughs> right 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 and like invert it's is just like mistake. you are wrong yeah, yeah yeah I think it's mistake it reminded me of Rosie O'Donnell one time on her talk show 
was telling how she explained being gay to her son. So this was after she came out and I think it was probably like the final season of her show. And she said she explained it to him by saying, you know, when you have your Thomas the Tank trains and they're magnets and they go together. And then sometimes you get trains where the magnets don't go together and they repel. And then you have to find another one that has the backward magnet. And then those two link up and those are your mommies, you know, but that's what invert made me think of. I'm like, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Like the, the Thomas magnets. That's that. Uh, I'm, I know less about gay people than I did before I heard that, <laughs> um, but that's, that's absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, love, love that. Yes. I'm glad that that, is what gets brought up for you. That's really awesome. That really, that really stuck with me, Rosie's stuff. Because like that was around the time that I was understanding my own sexuality. And I'm like, okay, that's a metaphor that I can wrap my head around. <laughs> You're like that res that so resonates. I'm just the annoying oh. magnet in the toy set. <laughs> oh, that's really great. But that does kind of add this layer to it. It's like, oh, okay. Tony's not just worried about the business. She is so afraid that Max is going to be a big old dyke like her sister. Yeah. And I think that that, Oof. I mean, first of all, oh, yeah, poor baby, beautiful Max, who we never want anything bad to happen to because she's so precious. But yeah, that was that I think. And then also, you know, the way that that gets in her head, I think there's a for a lot of us who are. You know, obviously, I've never been a black woman in the 1940s trying to play professional baseball. But for a lot of us who are from any kind of marginalized community or intersection of marginalized communities, and you have this kind of like delusional self-belief, not maybe not delusional, but sort of you're like, it's like, oh, it doesn't really matter what the world is like, because I'm actually that fucking good. And um, you're like, maybe I don't totally make sense for the world, but I make sense for myself. And then it's always your mother, (laughs) like your mom says something. And or it's not necessarily always your mother, but then it's like one day you get this like real slap in the face of like actually people that like maybe you just don't make sense. And like maybe now you don't make sense to yourself and maybe now you're not good enough and um, you feel like a fucking idiot for ever having thought that you were like better than, you know, that none of that stuff mattered. And it was hard to it was kind of like her rock bottom like you're wait you're so waiting for her to get this opportunity and then she whiffs it as they say but yeah it was like <laughs> such a I was like it was so it was like I'm going like from sexy fun to then like oh like the the parts of my emotional life that I like very really deep down and I mean, this is another thing that I love, love, love about this show is how much ground is covered with these characters, their arcs and the emotions and how much the story moves without feeling rushed or anything in each episode. Really kudos to the writer's room and and all of you for just doing it really feels just so masterfully done. And I would say this to anybody that I was talking to who wasn't a writer on the show, because when I'm like looking at my, my notes of everything that was in the episode, I was like, I can't believe all this stuff was in one episode. So Max gets her break. And I started like rethinking Max a lot this episode, because from the pilot, just my heart is bleeding for this person. Uh, <laughs> just 
wants something so bad and has every obstacle in her way. And then she finally gets the chance to pitch and to show off to the the Screws team. I love that. <laughs> the Screws jerseys. Um, <laughs> what what she can do. And I wasn't sure, is she choking or is she just not good enough to play with the boys? Is that like a super misogynistic thought that that I have? Like, because I, I could see like if you've always been, I mean, it sounds like she's like pitched with Gary and like her dad trained her and everything. But if she never like really got the opportunity to play for these teams for a moment, I was like, oh, did she just think that she could like outpitch these men, but she couldn't? Or is she choking? Yeah, I mean, I think you're supposed to, or like there is an ambiguity there because Max, that's like the ambiguity Max is now experiencing. Exactly. Where she's like, oh, was I not that good? Or, yeah. But I think what we wanted to do in this episode was, you know, obviously for somebody like Max, there's so many fucking, like you just said, like, there's so many obstacles. Everywhere Max turns, there's a new obstacle. And that's just true. That's true about the time period. That's true uh, today. But I think what we don't always get to talk about is how you internalize those obstacles and how when and how you become you can become your own obstacle and uh, to give to be able to give Max that or to like have Shantae work with like it's not just you know because it almost is like you don't want Max to be doing the same thing every week where it's like somebody else tells Max no right um, which she gets told no a lot and it's like what happens when when you uh, let yourself down yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a valid question because it's the same question that, that Max is asking herself yeah. at the end of that episode. Yeah, I, I found that to be very interesting. I mean, you know, laws of TV, you know, she gets her break and it's not going to go like she wants. But it was still like heartbreaking nonetheless because you just want it so bad for her. <laughs> and she's, you know, working the night shift, working the day at the beauty salon, doing all this just <laughs> to get the shot, throws down the paychecks, just the confidence. Oh, they're throwing down the paychecks. <sighs> oh, my, my little baby Max. Yeah. I've done that once and I took it back immediately. I made a bet. <laughs> one <laughs> one week's wages. And I was like, you know what? Never mind. Not not feeling that confident. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Check. A day's, an hour's wage. One drink, one drink will wager yeah. on this bet. Another thing with Max in this episode that also started getting me to be a little bit like, come on, Max, get it together, even though she's in a hard place, is Clance, who I just have so much heart for, for Clance. Just not only is that actor is just nailing the role just every line every delivery the timing of it is just perfection every time and then just having to go from her her relationship with guy to what she is with max to how she presents to to the rest of the world it i'm obsessed with it but then when max is just so self-centered like so caught up in her own world that she forgets that Clance might actually need need a friend <laughs> yeah I think <sighs> we're and it's maybe not totally you're not you might not be there yet in the season but I'm not really giving anything away but there is a little parallel that we were kind of drawing between Max and Clance and Joe and Greta where it's like maybe you know I think that, that Clance and Max like love and support the hell out of each other but sometimes friendships 
can get into sort of a pattern where maybe one person's a bit more being like, you know, more cheerleading the other person. And Max has this like very specific dream that, you know, she's going after and Clance's life is like maybe to Max, like not as interesting in certain ways. Yeah. And I think it doesn't mean that they're like not incredible best friends who are close and love each other. But I think that moment happens in a lot of friendships where you get so used to this person just being in your corner that you kind of forget that they also have an interior life. Yeah. Well, I also thought it was interesting too, because when they have the dinner with Gary, I was feeling bad for Gary too. I was like, well, aren't Gary's dreams real to him? Like, why? why is- <laughs> no. <laughs> Forget Gary, please. Boys have cooties and no dreams. No. I, yeah, I felt bad. I'm like, why can't he want to be a pitcher? Like, maybe he's not going around the way <laughs> Max is, you know, obsessing about it outwardly as much. But when he says, what if that's my dream? You know, I'm like, yeah, what? What if it is his dream? <laughs> what if it what is? Mean? He's I, been nothing but nice to you and you're crushing. You don't like your dreams crushed. Don't crush this guy. It's not his fault that he also has the same dream. Gary. Gary tries. He really tries. But I do think there is a thing. There's a, I think there is a personality type. We talked about this a lot in the room too, of like people who are so driven to be successful can get really myopic yeah. and can get a little unintentionally self-centered because their dream is so important to them. And it is important. I mean, what Max wants to do is is important, but you can kind of forget that other people are not like steps along the way of you achieving your dream, that they also have their own dreams. But right. But I'm still come on. But Gary should know better. His dreams are not as important as Max's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, but I, I do love I, I do love Gary and Guy, though. I can only imagine what it would be like to have a talent like Max's and know that this is the one thing that I do best in life and I have to do this or else I don't know who I am. And that's driving her throughout. So I was I was on that train with her until this episode. And then I started being like, hey, Clance has been a well, you're friend. <laughs> they pulled back some... I made her a lot more mean to Gary than uh, than she was. I mean, normally that's my bread and butter. Like, yes, be mean, but but Gary's kind of a sweetheart. Uh, he's, he's I trying. know Gary does nothing but try. He does nothing but try, and he's just a little oblivious. A lot of oblivious. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Poor Gary. Another big arc and a, a character that we get a great dose of in this episode is Lupe. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You have worked with Roberta Calendras before on Vita or did your paths cross that? Sort of. We, we were technically on at the same time. Like we were in the same episode, but we, we didn't have any scenes together, but okay. I knew her a little bit just prior. Just, you know, we run distantly in the same circles is a lot of lesbians too but um (laughs) but yeah then I got to know her around Vita and then got to know her a little bit better uh, more recently yeah Lupe is having an episode uh has a lot of I mean for the lines that she had each line in terms of just how she's feeling how hard it is to be a bench player and to have to watch all this and a fun line was when they were on the bus and getting the assignments and she gets put with 
essay <laughs> and she's like, yep, totally random. <laughs> yeah, poor. I mean, yeah, there was, we, we, we originally had a little bit more of that in the episode that we, or uh, more of stuff with the two of them that made more, ended up making more sense later in the season time-wise, but their dynamic is very special to me. Yeah. Obviously for a lot of reasons, but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fun thing where people love to pair up the two people who have ethnicity in common, <laughs> uh, even though it's not the same country. <laughs> and be like, okay, they're, they're similar enough. Let's keep throwing them together, whether or not they get along or like each other. And I do, I do like that essay has that moment where she kind of loses her, her cool when Lupe says that she's gonna, that she thinks she should be coach. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, you, I mean, that was so fun. I love to give, uh, I love to give Essie a little, uh, let her have a little sass for a second. Yes. She's like, nobody wants that. Yeah. (laughs) Please. I, I, yes, I do also love how much, uh, Esty comes into her own, but Lupe just really, really feeling for her in this one, just not getting a fair shake on the team. Yeah. And I think we don't necessarily say it out loud in this one, but there's a lot of underlying like race stuff happening that for sure. is also getting like, it's like, you know, getting in her head and she kind of had this one thing, which was being the pitcher and had being the only person that the coach liked. And uh, that gets taken away from her. And yeah, I mean, it's just R- Roberta can do a lot with a little and she's really hot. So yeah, anytime we get to see her, we just love. Yeah. And uh, she gets into it with Carson on the field and mm-hmm. the fight breaks out. And then she gets blamed for it by the chaperone, which is maddening. <laughs> And really sets up for the next episode, not to spoil, but definitely giving Lupe a pass for any hard feelings, because that sucks. (laughs) Like, I think everybody knows how much it sucks to get blamed in a two person (laughs) altercation when the other person has just as much, if not more, responsibility. We talked about it in the room a little bit because I I can't remember how it came up, but somebody was like, well, I mean, but like she started the fight and I was like, uh... She was like, I was like, I was, I was like, she was walking away and Carson (laughs) pulled her back in. It's actually, Carson actually started that fight. Okay. But yeah, we've all been, I would, you know, as my mother would say growing up, like if you, if if you are ever in a fight, like you just have the type of face where it's going to be your fault. Yeah. (laughs) So just don't, um, poor, poor Lupe. Yeah, but that that poor elbow That's and tough. having to always room with the with the with the kid. Yeah, <laughs> and I love that shot of the the roommate pairings when they get to the convent and it's just panning across the rooms, which gets us to Shirley talking about how she thinks <laughs> that Joe is gay and how being a lesbian is contagious and. For some reason, Shirley's like obsession in this episode with Joe being queer and queerness spreading and just being homophobic. It was like the most endearing homophobia I have ever seen. I was just like, I like, why do I like her more? She's being terrible. I know. But she's so dumb. It's, <laughs> it's, 
it's just like, well, it was sort of deliberate choice because it was like, there's no way everybody on this team would be like immediately, like of, of the straight people on the team that everybody would just be like, that's fine. Right. Um, and then it's like, well, but in, Shirley like has so, Shirley's just not, she's incredibly sheltered. Um, she grew up incredibly sheltered and she just doesn't know about stuff and she's scared of a lot. And it's also, she's like a Jew during World War II. There's a lot to be afraid of. Yeah. Um, and then just to have, you know, Kate can kind of take anything and run with it. And just to have, it's just like the cutest homophobia. Like you said, it's like, it doesn't feel as bad as it could feel when it's coming from Shirley, who's like ideas also. And by the way, those, I did a lot of research about how people thought it like, you know, sort of crazy stereotypes about uh, how homosexuality spread. And those were like real things that people thought that you could catch it. And I mean, I caught it by watching A League of Their Own in 1992. It gave me a lot of feelings. Listen, <laughs> and now we're and now we're all here. Uh, I mean, it does not to say that it doesn't spread because it does. Yeah. So actually, in a way, Shirley's right. Yeah, <laughs> she nailed it. Her fears, her fears are right. Fears are valid. Yeah, it was fun. Fun to have new new pairings. It's interesting because I didn't make the connection. Maybe because there's just like so much going on, and I'm so focused on the gayness and the baseball of it all that I wasn't even thinking about like Shirley's neuroses, how they're probably super inflamed by the war that's happening and what's happening to the Jewish population in Europe. Yeah. I mean, we, especially, you know, there's so much when in a red, like the, where we give these people all this backstory that barely ever makes it on to screen, but yeah. It's like, yeah. If you're somebody who's like inclined to be anxious anyway, and then you're, and, you know, a bunch of I'm myself, I'm Jewish, Abby's Jewish. It just were like, yeah, a Jew in the 40s who also is like not with her mom for the first time yeah. um, with a bunch of goys. I mean, yeah, you're going to be a little extra probably nervous about stuff. Yeah, for sure. Like at first you just think like, oh, it's a quirky character. And then it's like, wait a minute. Whoa, Shirley's going through a lot of shit. Poor Cheryl, you know. And on top of it, got... she's afraid of, of catching the gay. <laughs> she better watch out. Yeah. I did, I think there's also like a, a funny element to me of like people who are so obsessed with like, is this person gay? We got to watch out for it. It's like, oh, you're being real gay right now. Like you're more obsessed with like, <laughs> you're just as obsessed with like who's gay here as probably the other gay ladies on the team being like, who's who's on my team? yeah you're just not having fun with it yeah because it's like it's very it's a very gay preoccupation yeah like to be worried is is gay yes so maybe Shirley should think about that uh one of my favorite lines from Shirley this episode is my mother said never trust a woman who loves a sandwich (laughs) was that a thing was that a stereotype no, that was just a moment of brilliance. <laughs> just, just having fun, you know. You just have a little fun sometimes. I just was like, "What is like something like kind of random that seems that's like a, almost butch?" That's so like, butch. Liking sandwiches is like, yeah, it's, right. It's butch. Yeah, but you're it's eating like, with your hands. Like, you're it's nothing. You're yeah. slapping stuff between bread and just biting it. Yeah, yeah you gotta, you gotta get, you gotta get in there. Yeah, um, there's nothing dainty about eating a sandwich. That's also, okay. I just have this like vision in my head of like Shirley's what of Shirley's mother, 
who like in my mind, like none of the the other writers don't know this, but in my mind, like Shirley's mother has been like hit on by a bunch of lesbians. And like (laughs) one of them was holding a sandwich and she's like never been the same since. Yes. I also want this to catch on and be like the new turn of phrase and be like, oh, she's a sandwich lover. Like (laughs) that, that's our new code. So let's start. Does she like sandwiches? Yes. We're going to get to some questions. Well, first, before we get into our typical questions, because you did write the episode, who's your favorite character to write for? Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, I love to write for Shirley. I love to write for Clance. Those two, obviously, a lot of comedy. They're very fun. But I really, really, really love to write for Jess, who doesn't have a ton in my episode. She has one one thing that's really important to me, which is the we're doing our nails. Yes. Thing. Um, yes. I love that. <laughs> oh, that one. Got which I was me. sure was sure was going to get cut. But like her with there with a toothpick. I was because Jess, I just also Kelly's who plays Jess is so such a genius and like created Jess as much as any of us did. Um, did like literally wrote like a 40 page like biography of Jess before they started shooting. She's just like Jess is able to be so funny because she's never trying to make a joke yeah she just like is deeply her own strange sexy bird and i love to write i love writing for jess jess had some of my favorite moments actually in that episode the nails and then when lupe gets mad and hits her hat in the locker room against the thing and then jess comes up and then hits her hat yeah and i had nothing to do with that i mean that was them being a genius, them being geniuses over there. Or I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm giving the show such a hand job. I'm like, geniuses. Everybody's a genius. Everything was so thought out. But I just, I'm, I'm in a happy place. No, I that was so good. Was so enjoyed the show. I do think lot. that was episode Which is four. Self-centered. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just being grounded in reality because it is the best show that's come out this year. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Standard questions. There is no crying in baseball, but there is in watching this show. What was the most emotional scene for you of this episode? The, the most emotional scene to write was the was Max and her was the mom stuff with Max. But the most emotional for me to watch is the one I talked about is the I like to watch you line mm. because I've never been so vulnerably horny and <laughs> watching that I mean, in life. Sure. Right. In my work. No. Um and to watch that, I, I was really, I was like blushing, watching it on screen. And I, it, and I was crying. I mean, I didn't like, wasn't like sobbing, but I had a little tear of like, oh, you, you wrote the thing that you um, wished you could have, you know, it's like, I wanted, if I had been able to get that horny as a child yeah. watching TV, you know, maybe life would have been different. <laughs> um, so that was, that was special. That was like a weird, weirdly touching for me to watch. For me, it was when Clance asks Guy what he's really afraid of, and he says losing his glasses. And I'm trying not to cry right now, um, but... I know, that part is hard. That part was hard to write also. Oh Little my baby. gosh. I, I would marry Guy. Yeah. I think he's very cute, and you just don't want anything bad to ever happen to him. And I am scared of him losing his glasses. I mean, it's like, I don't know, do you ever, th- do you wear, are you a glasses wearer? 
occasionally, but it, it does bring me back to Macaulay Culkin's character in My Girl when he dies and she sees him in the casket and she's like, where are his glasses? He can't see without his glasses. That's where it like oh, took me. Gonna... Yeah. And I'm like, which is like the most gut wrenching moment of that movie. Yeah, I'm going to cry hearing about that. I'm going to cry <laughs> thinking about that. I, but whenever I think, because I, I mean, we're in context right now, but I do wear glasses. And whenever I think about like, if some shit really goes down, like I keep all of my pairs of glasses because I'm so afraid of one of them breaking and then I'm then I'm it's like that's what's going to kill me is right that right one, a, my my glasses will break and then I won't be able to see and then I'll get shot Ugh. in whatever end days scenario yeah happens seems like such a small thing but it is actually kind of a big thing and it just felt like such a real answer and it's like obviously he's afraid of dying but like yeah nobody nobody cares about your glasses in war like <laughs> god they really made me do some fucked up stuff in that episode right oh yeah to to have those scenes i mean so many important conversations happening and yes like guy he has to be amazing to be smart enough to lock it down with Clance to be like yeah this woman's incredible I love this comic book nerd woman with a sense of humor who's the MVP of this episode for you okay blink and you miss her but the MVP for me is Cheryl who is somebody else who works at the factory that Clance knows from around town. <laughs> and now Cheryl doesn't have much to do in my episode. Again, blink and you miss her, but she comes up in a big way later. And for that, you will understand why Cheryl's my MVP. And I just feel so honored that I got to introduce her to the world. Uh, so if you rewatch, keep your eye out for Cheryl. Actually, just keep your eye out for Cheryl in the coming the coming episodes. But uh, Okay, I love she's that. She's a good time. I love that. What an insight. <laughs> For me, it was Shirley and her and her homophobia. <laughs> that is, I mean, we stand. Yeah. Uh, uh, an endearing homophobic. An endearing homophobe. She's a homophobic. Uh, <laughs> also very important by confiding in Carson. So Carson, who, you know, she's dealing with all this and navigating it for the first time might also be so carried away in the excitement that she forgets like, oh, wait, wait, there are people who aren't going to be okay with this. So by surely speaking up and being like, hey, I'm afraid about this, then, you know, it's it's a very important role that Shirley's hom- yeah, I mean, homophobia she's saves everybody. She's establishing this stick because, you know, especially Carson's not really done this kind of thing before. Yeah. And if you don't know what there is, if you, you know, She's not like Greta and Joe who had to do this yeah. for their whole lives and know what the risks are. And it's easy for the audience to forget too, because they've been having a sexy fun time the whole time. So surely serves as kind of the like, don't forget it's 1943 and you can't just be out here fucking. <laughs> but why not? No. Um, were there any, <laughs> well, yeah. were there any strikes in this episode for you? So anything that, you wish had gone differently something that didn't make the cut something that maybe didn't play out the way that you hoped it would i think the two things for me is i mean i just love being able to write for lupe and sd but it just didn't there was so much happening in this episode that it, it makes total sense somewhere else but just as in like a selfish way i was i wish that we'd have been able to do some of that stuff but it 
again, makes a hundred percent more sense where it actually is in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had had, <laughs> I mean, cut for time and probably because they weren't that funny, but I had a runner in the, like throughout the episode of Joe screaming different obscure and, or like invented baseball terms at everyone <laughs> that nobody understood. Like no cans of corn, like just Joe's like screaming these like insane things and like confusing people, um, which just was fun, really fun to write. But, uh, you know, I can see why it's not me to make it into the final edit, but, you know, I, I missed that. At one strike, why did it take so long for them to notice that the lights were going out in the outfield? Come on. <laughs> Those lights are, are noisy when they go off. <laughs> Listen, they have a lot. They're, they got a lot going on. Okay. I'm being an asshole. I'm being an asshole. But really, no, I'm like, no, if no, I bring it, I really had a no, really, thing. Tell me what you didn't like. <laughs> tell me what you didn't like. I wish uh, I was that threatening about it. <laughs> and I wish you really didn't like something. And maybe you did. And you're just not saying it to me because I wrote it. No, but no. I'll blame any. If you didn't like something, I'll blame anyone else. <laughs> Honestly, that that was the only thing that I was like, wait, what? Because at first I've played softball, I've played night games, and I'm like, why are they struggling so much? And I'm like, something must be amiss. It can't just be that this is their first night game. So then when they're finally like, wait, the light goes off when we're in the field or whatever, um, I was like, but then how it makes just such a big noise when the light goes out and on. Wait, you want you want to watch me blame someone else? Because I will. Um, yeah. Originally in the script, it was that so can, they were playing Kenosha, and then I'll be so fast. You're gonna have to seriously. I mean, I'm like over talking way too much, but I wrote this show so long ago, and we haven't got to talk about it yet. Um, originally, the it, the game takes place in Kenosha, and in real life in Kenosha, they the their field, which by the way, this is just fun. The field that the Comets played on is was called Horlick Field. That's Poor lick field for everyone out there, which of course I probably had like five pages of jokes on in the episode, which again, well, we can understand why that was cut. Yeah. But slut bite field oh. was in the next town over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can come on. It's fun for days. But uh, so it, it was on uh, like like the field was right next to a river and fog would roll in. From I thought you were going to say a whorehouse. And, and, uh, <laughs> it was on a whorehouse. I know, but it's like fog would roll in from the river and the comets were all used to it and they used it to their advantage. And right. whereas like everybody who would come in from out of town before that, you know, wasn't used to it and had no idea how to play in the fog. But then guess what? Like fog really fucking expensive um, mm. on a show that's already pretty expensive. And so they had to end up making it a uh, night game. And also night games were like new in the forties um, yeah. because they, yeah. So spreading faster than fascism. <laughs> Okay, and then, I mean, maybe maybe I already know the answer. It might be the same as one before, but what was a home run for you? I'm sure there were a lot of home runs for you in this episode, but what's maybe something you haven't talked about yet that you really love about this episode? I mean, could I, could I honestly like be like more masturbatory <laughs> than I have been already? I loved everything. It was perfect. Best episode of TV ever made. Um, every single moment was a home run. No. Um, but I am, I, I've already said it, but, uh, the, but just doing, doing, uh, her nails 
yeah. is that's a home run for me. Yeah. Um, because she really means she really means it. Like to her, that is her and Greta having like a bonding moment where they're both doing their nails. Yeah. Um, but also every every my other favorite thing in the whole season is Plants's relationship with the neighborhood boys. And like I am yes. currently working on a, a spin-off about Big C, who is the tiny, tiny one. But anytime she gets a chance to yell at them is my is my favorite. I mean, I feel like there could be a whole like sister web series that's just like extra scenes of like Clance on her morning walk going by those boys. <laughs> Being like so mean to that. I mean, that's just, it's just, it, we, that was, I mean, there's a lot of heavy stuff in this show and right. it was such a pressure valve in the writer's room of us just like being able to to switch to like, what's a, what's something else Clance yelled those boys. Um, but yeah, those, those, and all of that. Benny, who plays Clance, was also one of the writers in the room. So yes, I saw she's that. Just, she's an all-around perfect genius. Amazing. For me, the home run was the I like to watch. You leave like yeah. That means so much to me. Yeah, that I was like wow, it, wow. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge that you appreciated that F- for sure. I mean, I I feel like I'm the target audience for. <laughs> <laughs> good for that line like, i just have given lesbians so much it's like you you God. must get a glad award if you don't get a glad award i'm gonna handcuff myself to the red carpet and just like demand justice you know for I, michelle badia i always say if but if i get a glad award you know i must be doing something wrong okay <laughs> they just give them they give them they to the straights they're, they're just giving yeah, it to they the love straights. to do that I'm like, why does Beyonce have a GLAD award? I'm all for her getting awards, but can't we keep the GLADs to ourselves? <laughs> Come on. You know, or it's like, at least we went to Solange, because like, who's like totally the kit. Yes. Of, <laughs> of She's like the queer the and kit of, uh, yes. It's like, even if Solange is like not technically queer, like Solange is like yeah. spiritually queer. Jay-Z's mom. Jay-Z's mom is a lesbian. Give it to Mrs. Yes, Carter. give one to Jay-Z. Yes, give a Glad Award to Jay-Z's mom, please. It makes no sense. I don't know what they're thinking over at Glad. Okay, we're finally, we've made it. We're in extra innings. Is there anything else that you can share with us about the show, behind the scenes, stuff that fans of the show would want to know, or this episode in particular? The only thing I think that's fun that we haven't talked about is the working title you know obviously it wasn't really going to be the title but internally the working title for this episode was topping from the bottom um <laughs> because that was what how i felt like that was the best way i could describe carson's journey in this episode is that carson is is is, is a bottom but she's learning she's topping from the bottom and then of course it became a song topping from the bottom now we hear topping from the bottom now the whole team fucking so that's the best behind the scenes tidbit I could I could give you. That's amazing. Um, and that like incredibly queer writers room that we like spent a good deal of time like really talking about like the thematic relevance of topping from the bottom and like what does that mean and like how like we took it it wasn't just a joke like we were like let's talk about topping from the bottom. I love that. So how did you get to switch hitter then? Ah, uh, well, me? No, uh, I think that they they just were, they, we... They went to we the pod list. We talked a lot about what, yeah, we talked a lot about what the uh, 
episode titles could be. And I think it was a while back we were like, oh, it, maybe it makes sense if if they're all baseball terms. But yeah. I I I didn't know it was called switch hitter until everybody knew it was called switch hitter. So. Oh, all right. It, originally, it was just called one hundred and four. Well. There we have it. Michelle, thank you so much. This has been so fun and I have enjoyed every minute of this. Where can people follow you and see what you're up to? They can follow me on Instagram at, at M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-B-A-D-I-L-L-O underscore. I almost forgot how to spell my own name just now, but you can find me there. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Obviously, you could tell that I was very excited to be able to talk about it. Do you have any other upcoming projects that you want to direct people to? Or should we just say, remember, if you haven't yet, to please leave a five-star review on Prime Video for A League of Their Own don't read the comments that are there. Out. Just go. Unless that's, five stars. unless you want to have a, unless you have a strong stomach and you can have a good laugh about it. But um, it's rough over there. I, I do. There is a show I wrote for another show for Amazon Prime uh, called The Horrors of Dolores Roach, but um, which is Ooh. also going to be. It's well, anyway. But that's not going to. I mean, you know, TV takes forever, so that probably won't be coming out until sometime in the middle of next year. So follow me, and I'll remind you again. Yes, I want to be reminded of that. I'm just the title alone. I'm like, I'm in. Another writer from the show, Morgan Gould, posted some of the uh, one-star reviews on um, on Amazon <laughs> that were homophobic. And my favorite one was complete homosexual extravaganza. That should be the tagline for the show, I think. That's a fun, <laughs> That's great. That, is a, that is an advertisement for this show. Yeah. My favorite... One was this man whose biggest problem was that Carson immorally writes a letter to her husband, which is like just such an amazing turn of phrase. That's a fucking advertisement for the show. So thank you, Mr. Whoever wrote that. I'm sure he's having an awful night right now. Somebody else I saw was like, they should call, they should have called it Bush League. At least then I would have known what I was getting into. And I was like, oh my God, that's such a good idea. <laughs> I like fully co-sign that we should rename it Bush League. Yes. I love it when someone thinks that they're trying to own you, but really you want to high five them. Be like, that's a good one. Like, uh, imagine the uh, amazing Bush they all had in the forties. I mean, yes. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I know I will. I was going to say, you, you can hear it, you can't see it, but Michelle just got lost in uh, Bushland <laughs> in, her, in her head for two two glorious seconds. Uh, well, again, went to, went to old, old Bush Gardens. Thank you so much again, Michelle, and can't wait for season two. Oh, well, let's <laughs> let's hope we get one. But, but again, thank you. And thank you for watching. And thanks for the podcast. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe and rate five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can follow the podcast at League of Their Own Pod on Instagram. And you can follow me personally at TGI Carolyn. I also co-host another podcast called Diking Out. And it's exactly what it sounds like. So check that out if you're so inclined. And remember... Never trust a woman who loves a sandwich. Take me right back to the track.